The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Brooke, Christian, Kent, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Alicia, Katya, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, Jackie, Annabelle, Dawn, and Megan. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to be talking about Title IX and celebrating the 50th anniversary. So let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, was Title IX just about sports? And we are joined on this episode by Sarah Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald is a former Washington Post editor who loves to write and has a deep passion for history and has written a bunch of different books about amazing women in history. So I hope you check them out. There's a link to her work on Amazon uh, in our show notes. So That's check really that out. interesting. Yeah, she's got amazing stuff. So I'm really excited to, to share that with everybody. Brooke, today we're going to be talking about Title IX and it's the 50th anniversary of Title IX this year. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I I guess I didn't really realize it's I don't know why like time is getting weird for us in our age right yeah, now. Yeah, I don't think 2004 is that far away, but it's real far away. Yeah, it feels <laughs> forever. So But that's not surprising, I guess, cuz like when I think of Title IX, I don't know what like images pop into your mind, but for me it's like some pretty killer female athletes that really populate my mind, but mm. I don't know if that's the same for you. Yeah. Well, so before, I think that is really important because our question today, you know, it like, is this just about sports? I think it's important. And, you know, you were talking about athletes. Um, Title nine is, is not, is not just about sports necessarily. Um, but I think it gets that reputation because in its early years, those were sort of the big battles that were being fought over Title IX. So let's clarify what we're talking about. Title IX is uh, part of the Civil Rights Act It uh, of 19, is an amendment to the Act of 1964. This amendment was made in 1972. Um, and it prohibits sex-based discrimination in any school or other education program that receives funding from the federal government. And I have a very weird family story where my mom actually was going to college uh, in the years after Title IX was passed, but she went to a private college that didn't receive federal funds. Yep. So they didn't have to follow those rules. Mm -hmm. And the trickle-down sort of like social effect of okay we're funding you know equal programs for women and, and things like that just didn't happen for her and she was a three-sport athlete in college and got to her senior year and they told her she wouldn't graduate because she didn't have enough PE credits <laughs> and she was like are, are you joking so comical yeah so she had to do like badminton and like all the PE things spring of her senior year in order to graduate and you know it's just it's neat I went to the same college as her uh, but you know like 20-30 years later and I played only two I'm not as cool as my mom I only played two college sports <laughs> and um had enough plenty of PE credits to, to graduate um with with abundance because of that and you know I I, I think about just the slow trickle down, you know, trickle effect of actually implementing these amendments over time. So what blows my mind about this is that 
1972 is about 100 years after women are going to public schools. And it's not until then that the federal government is like, oh, yeah, we probably shouldn't discriminate against girls in our institutions. So it's pretty wild. I don't know about you, but I'm super grateful to have gone to college after Title IX passed. I'm grateful to grow up after Title IX passed, you know, to go to school, elementary school, middle school, high school. And never know anything different. Yeah. Never know a time where it was legal to discriminate. It was legal to underfund girls' programs, to give them hand-me-down jerseys, you know, those sort of things. To not provide buses and funding to get them to games and referees and yeah. I mean, and there's a lot of scenarios, and I'm sure you have some memories of, you know, moments where women weren't necessarily treated equally, but... You know, I think of some recent times in the NCAA, you know, March Madness tournament where the girls locker room was like mediocre for women's basketball in comparison to men's basketball where they had like tons of weightlifting equipment, saunas. And it was like, you know, some of the women's basketball players started taking videos and just sharing it. And they're like, hello. Yeah. <laughs> like, we are also D1 yeah, athletes. And so this this year, yeah. uh, March Madness, they stopped calling it the women's and men's um tournament they started calling it march madness march madness ncla national basketball champions yeah stop gendering it yeah exactly (laughs) which is kind of cool so i think everywhere has made a lot of strides but we still have you know a long way to go but it's only been 50 years which makes a lot of sense why we have a long way to go yeah I mean, Title IX really starts to battle in education discrimination of all sorts. I mean, I think about things like teachers can't hold school girls to different standards um, mm-hmm. for for school. Um, they can't sexualize their female students, which I, I like. That seems bizarre that we would even need to talk about that, but we need to talk about that, and we, and we still need to talk about that. That still happens. I have witnessed that I have been, mm-hmm. you know, I have been in Title IX meetings in schools um, where that's happening from, you know, faculty. Um, we can't require sexual favors for grades, which like we it's had to bizarre. pass yeah. laws to like <laughs> put that into into the books. Um, it protects students on student interactions. Um, I in, <laughs> I dealt with a lot of those um, in my time as a as a public high school teacher um, because you know adults are are easier to manage their behavior, but like you can't control teenager. I mean, you, it's harder to control teenage behavior, but it does impact the learning environment for students. Like if oh, the person 100%. sitting next to you is sexually harassing you, that's a difficult learning environment to be in. Um, so, you know, those, it, it's, it's a pretty broad, when we talk about, you know, making um, education equally accessible. And the language of the law is really interesting. It says no person shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in. And so that means, you know, if you're going to have a basketball team, there has to be a a team that girls are allowed to play on. Um, They cannot be denied the benefits of or be subjected to. And I think the benefits of sports and education programs are all the education opportunities, all the leadership opportunities, all of the... Um, you know, I think character development. Yeah. One example that we ran into in my high school is that, you know, they were forcing, not necessarily forcing, but they really suggested that all the girls take home economics. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. at the same time, they let all the boys take CAD courses. Yeah. Or shop. Or and so, there yeah. was no other times that you could take one or the other. And so it just became like, well, why do I have to take home economics when, you know, XYZ male does not and I want to take CAD? And they're like, well, you know, most of the girls are in that class. Wouldn't you be more comfortable? No. Yeah. And like, why are you guidance counselor pushing pushing gender? Yeah. Why are you gender norming? You know, any. And so it was like, no, I'll take CAD. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'll see you over there. Yeah. So and and, and the last part is uh, discrimination under any education program. The neat thing about this is it says no person on the basis of sex. And so that can include, you know, the LGBTQ plus community. Um, it can include, you know, not just gender, but sexuality. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. So I and think it, and it should. I think, you know, when you think about discrimination and discrimination and within the learning environment, those who are out and, you know, in their communities, you know, are 
are preyed upon a lot mm-hmm. of times, especially in school communities. So. Yeah. Well, and I think right now we're in a different generation of school sports and access where a lot of the conversation is about trans students right. yeah. accessing sports. Um, but, you know, in in the early years of Title IX, it was just it was about women accessing those right. things. And we're just seeing another generation fighting that battle for for equal access. Um in 1979, Catherine McKinnon published a groundbreaking book that argued that sexual harassment was sex discrimination. And keep in mind, this is like almost, this is over a decade before um, Anita Hill and other, you know, kind of like huge high profile cases of right. sexual harassment are in the cultural conversation. Um, and she, so she's publishing this book basically saying sexual harassment impacts a person's experience of the workplace, of their school, of their sports team, of their, you know, insert whatever they're doing here. Yeah. And it's um, a problem. And so this is a a huge shift in the types of legal suits that are brought in Title IX. Prior to that, you know, it had been things like school programs, school sports and things like that, which is why Title IX is so strongly associated with sports right Right. people think title nine they think sports um and you know i was i was watching the ncaa tournament this weekend and they had a title nine ad for the 50th anniversary running you know so it is associated with that yeah i think about billy jean king you know when she makes the competition against the male Mm -hmm. um tennis battle of the sexes exactly so like that's when i feel like title nine really got on a lot of people's radars, even though it was around for a little longer. Right. And I mean, in her case, she's trying to battle for that at the professional level, similar to the way that, you know, the the modern women's soccer team is trying to do that. Right. Exactly. You know, there's no federal law that's going to protect them. There's no education funding that's coming their way. They have to get their union. They have to get their companies. Right. They have to get those people to, to they provide have to get their sponsors to be appropriate. Yeah. And I think, you know, Title IX, that is Title IX's legacy is you have a generation of women who have grown up having equal-ish access to sports and play and competition. And then they get to the professional level and they might have access to the teams, but they have worse locker rooms. They have yeah. lower pay, you know, fractions of the pay that the men get. Even though and, they have more winning seasons. Yeah. Uh, right. And more <laughs> attendance in their games. Don't don't even get us started. Anyways. Yeah. So um, so I think there's a lot there's a lot of there, a lot of power there. But there's this huge shift that happens after 1979 um, away from these sort of like program level uh lawsuits that are coming forward to try to you know expand the protections of title nine and there's this big shift towards battling sexual harassment and in the like nine in the 2000 teen years there were lots of high profile sexual harassment college campus rape cases and things like that Mm. where girls are largely girls are suing college campuses for not protecting protecting them you know and um you know it's hard because this is a a different interpretation of what title IX is there to do and so it's therefore kind of controversial in the legal community um but at the same time uh these are really important ways to protect equal access to education and to all these educational opportunities um for students so it's it's a you know, advocates obviously are supportive of an expanded interpretation of what Title, right. title IX um, does. Um, so that, I I wrote a whole uh, postgraduate paper on Title IX and, and sexual assault on, on public campuses um, and how it can be legally applied, those sort of things. Um, but Yeah, and most institutions now have a Title IX officer or office mm-hmm. um, because they really needed to eradicate a lot of this predatory behavior that's happening rampant across college institutions. Yeah. So to give us and our listeners a sort of a jolt of reality of how much has changed since the oh. early years prior to 1972, prior to Title IX, Sarah Fitzgerald is here um, to share with us some of her research and her work looking at uh, the time be- before Title IX 
and what it was like to be on a college campus. She's going to take us to the University of Michigan. Are they gold and navy? They are Michigan University. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. It's anyway, it's a thing. But <laughs> let's have Sarah introduce herself to our audience. Hello, my name's Sarah Fitzgerald. I'm a former journalist and a student of history, and I'm happy to join you today. I'm someone who's always liked to write, but when I got to high school and college, I discovered I really loved studying history. And since I retired, I've been able to write books about noteworthy women who are not as well known as they should be. The topic I want to discuss today is how did women fight sex discrimination in colleges and schools before the passage of Title IX? Title IX is 50 years old this year. Congress passed it in the summer of 1972, and it opened up many opportunities for women, particularly in athletics, many of which we take for granted today. But it always wasn't that way. A little bit about my background. I grew up mostly in the state of Michigan, and I entered the University of Michigan in 1969. I lived through the story I'm going to talk to you about today, and I covered it as a student journalist on the University of Michigan student newspaper, the Michigan Daily. I want to stop and, first of all, and uh, characterize a little bit about what the University of Michigan was like back then. The university was founded in 1817, but it didn't admit its first woman until 1870. Its culture was always more like the all-male schools of the Ivy League rather than the land-grant colleges that were created after the Morrill Act was passed during the Civil War years. When I entered the college in 1969, there had been a science research club for faculty members since 1902, but women faculty members weren't allowed to be members. The Student Union barred women from entering through the front door until 1954. And when I arrived in 1969, women weren't allowed in the marching band. It was known as the Marching Men of Michigan. When I started to go to football games, dogs had just permitted were just permitted to run on the floor of Michigan Stadium, but women were barred, even women sports photographers. After I entered Michigan, I learned that for my class, the class of 1969, the admissions officials had imposed a quota of 55% men, 45% women. The reason they decided to do that was in the 1960s, girls were starting to do better in high school than their male counterparts, having higher GPA averages and better SAT scores. And the admissions officials worried that if they didn't make an adjustment, there would be what one of them called an overbalance of women in the freshman class. In my Michigan high school, 36 of us entered Michigan in the fall of 1969, and it was not till later that I learned I had had to meet a higher standard than the boys who had sat across the aisle from me in my classes. But things began to change during the years of the early 1970s, and I was inspired by the women who had the courage to try and change things. They were the reason I decided to write my recent book about it called Conquering Heroines. I want to start off by talking about the state of legislation in the 1960s. And in the mid-1960s, Congress passed several key laws uh, to extend civil rights to African Americans. But women in education were excluded from the coverage of those laws, in part to get them passed. There were many Southern congressmen who, who opposed the passage of their laws. But presidents could also issue executive orders. And in September 1965, President Johnson issued an executive order that barred racial discrimination by federal contractors. Two years later, he followed it up with another executive order, number 11375. And this time, that one banned sex discrimination by federal contractors. 
But most news stories at the time focused on the fact that that executive order barred sex discrimination against federal employees. And a lot of women didn't notice the impact it was going to soon have on their colleges. My story starts with a woman named Bernice Sandler, who had just gotten a Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Maryland. And she applied for several openings her department um, had advertised that year uh, for new professors in her department. She was passed over by these jobs, for these jobs, and that disappointed her. And so she went to a friendly colleague to find out what was the problem. And he said to her, let's face it, Bunny, you come on too strong for a woman. Uh, That disturbed her, and she went home and talked to her husband about it. And he said, you're the victim of sex discrimination, a term she'd never heard before. Soon after that, a researcher told her, He couldn't hire her because she'd have to stay home with her kids if they got sick, ignoring the fact that by that point, Sandler's children were teenagers and able to stay home by themselves. Then someone at an employment agency looked at her resume and said, you're just a housewife who went back to school, not someone who holds a Ph.D. So she was troubled by this and set out to find a remedy, and she was disturbed to discover that those civil rights laws I mentioned didn't extend to women in education. But one day she was reading a report published by the Civil Rights Commission, and she turned to the back to check out a footnote, and she discovered a reference to the executive order that President Johnson had issued. And she described it later as a eureka moment because she realized Every major university and college in the United States held federal contracts, and this would give their faculty members a way to challenge some of the discrimination they were then encountering on their campuses. But Sandler wasn't a lawyer, and she wasn't sure she had interpreted this law right. So she called down to the Department of Labor in Washington, and her call was transferred to a man named Vincent Macaluso. He was a lawyer, a career employee, who was then deputy director of the Office of Federal Contract Compliance. He invited her to come down to talk, and when she got down there to meet with him, he said, I've been waiting for someone to call me. Macaluso guided, secretly, Sandler how to file a complaint and what to do to make sure it was taken seriously. So on January 31st, 1970, Sandler filed her first complaint against a major university, against the University of Maryland, her alma mater. She did it as a member of a group called the Women's Equity Action League's Action Committee on Federal Contract Compliance. Macaluso had told her it would help her if she had a title. So she created one, and she later admitted that the committee that she was allegedly the chairman of was actually a committee of one. She went to the University of Maryland and looked through their staff directories and compiled uh, her figures about the number of women in every department to make her case and visited the departments in person uh, to check out the names of people if they had names like Terry and she wasn't sure whether it was a male or a female. And when I started to go back to study this uh, period, I was struck by an interesting historical parallel that it hadn't occurred to me when I was living through it. Two days before Sandler filed her complaint, the Senate held hearings on the nomination of a judge named G. Harold Carswell, who was a Nixon nomination to a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. This marked the first time at those hearings when women opposed a Supreme Court nominee based on the positions he had taken in a case involving sex discrimination, an important case called Phillips v. Martin Marietta. And these hearings uh, helped galvanize women at the grassroots level to oppose the Carswell nomination, much the same way some later Supreme Court nominations have galvanized grassroots opposition of women. In this case, women started organizing groups called Focus on Equal Employment for Women. And one of those women was a woman named Jean King, 
who called together some of her friends in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and said, let's try to write some letters to the editor and organize telephone trees to call our senators to get them to oppose the Carswell nomination. Now, Jean King was also an interesting uh, person in my story. She had studied history as an undergrad and gotten a master's degree from the University of Michigan and then had worked uh, in a number of administrative jobs around the university as she started uh, to get married and have a family. She decided through her work in the Democratic Party that no one was going to take her seriously unless she became a lawyer. So at the age of 41 and with three children still at home, she entered the University of Michigan Law School. And in her entering class, in the class of 1968, the year she graduated, she was only one of 10 women in that law school class. When King graduated, uh, she was trying to build her legal career and network with women, and she went to an organizational meeting of a new group called the Professional Women's Caucus in New York City in the spring of 1970. It was there she met Bernice Sandler, who explained her new strategy for challenging colleges, and King decided to go back to Ann Arbor to see if she could pursue a complaint against the University of Michigan. She asked her friends in Focus if they would let her use their organization's name to file the complaint, and then proceeded to do the work uh, to gather the information she needed to do so. Now, King knew she had an advantage that women at many other colleges did not. She had been experiencing discrimination as a student and employee at Michigan, but she was no longer a student or employee, so the university couldn't retaliate against her the way other universities did against some of their women faculty members who filed complaints. The Remedial Herstory Project is hosting its second annual Summer Educators Retreat to help teachers integrate more women's history and literature into their curriculum. Studies show that educators currently teach women's history between 5 and 20% of the time, with 5% being the plurality. Our retreat will feature speakers from around the world and be available online and in person and provide educators with dozens of packaged lesson plans, videos, and other tools and resources to get women into every unit of their curriculum. The best part is that in-person attendees will get to network and relax with peers who are passionate about working to incorporate the diverse history of half the population all but left out of the history classroom. The retreat will take place at New Hampshire's Common Man Inn and Spa at the heart of the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the best place to be in August. The retreat will take place between August 8th and 10th. Interested people can learn more on our website at www.remedialherstory.com slash summer-educators-retreat. As I mentioned before, she was active in democratic politics, and so she was a good political strategist and was savvy about getting media coverage uh, for her work. And she enlisted some other people who were important uh, to her cause. One was a woman named Mary Yord, who she had known through her law school connections, and Yord was a Republican feminist who served on the Michigan Women's Commission and would be helpful in reaching out to Republican members of Congress. At that time, there was a graduate student named Kathleen Shortridge who had done a study of sex discrimination at Michigan for a graduate seminar in investigative journalism and had written a long piece about it uh, for the Michigan Daily that spring. It was Shortridge's interviews that turned up the existence of those quotas for my freshman class that I described to you earlier. And finally, she had the help of a tenured psychology professor named Elizabeth Duvan, who had the experience in crunching statistics to help her analyze the percentages of women uh, on the faculty at Michigan. What they found at the time was that only 6.6% of the professors for women, and if you excluded the School of Nursing, the number dropped to 5.3%. A student like me could go through Michigan for four years and never have a woman professor. They gathered up their information, and in May 1970, they filed a complaint, sending it to the Secretary of Labor, 
who was then George Schultz. They also put out a press release and sent copies to newspapers. And one of the things they did was to send it to the newspapers first, and reporters would call up the university and ask for comment, which would often flummox the university administrators, and they would sometimes be caught off guard and be quoted as saying things that they shouldn't have been caught saying. Around that time, uh, the Labor Department decided to send the complaint over to the federal department that was then known as the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, before a separate education department was created a few years later. Over that summer, both cabinet departments changed secretaries, and to make sure um, the complaint was well covered, Jean King and Mary Yord wrote four rounds of letters, more than 80 altogether, to their members of Congress, asking them to push the federal officials to follow up with their complaint. At the same time, Bernie Sander was also working with uh, women all over the country, and by that summer, uh, she had generated dozens of complaints against other universities, around 100 by the time that summer. Over that summer, Congresswoman Edith Green, who'd been instrumental in getting the uh, civil rights laws passed, worked with Sandler to hold hearings on sex discrimination at universities. And the hearings uh, ended up generating uh, 1,200 pages of transcripts, which were very illuminating about the problem. Sandler and Green worked together to prepare uh, transcripts of the hearings and distributed more than 6,000 copies around the country. And Sandler recalled that this went a long way towards establishing that sex discrimination on college campuses was indeed a problem. In August, under pressure from the Michigan members of Congress, HEW did in fact send two teams of investigators to investigate the situation at Michigan. And by early October, they presented their findings to university administrators telling them that they had concluded they were discriminating against women in hiring, promotions, and pay. They also knew that the university's anti-nepotism rules, the kind of rules that protect people from hiring their family members, tended to actually work against women because departments were refusing to hire two spouses uh, when a husband and wife had degrees in the same discipline. And they often found that the women had better credentials but were not being hired. What they found also was that the higher you got up the academic ranks, the fewer women were, hire were being hired. For instance, women were starting to come out of master's programs in greater numbers, but a smaller number were getting promoted into the Ph.D. programs and so forth. They also found that there were problems in the non-academic jobs at the university where women were relegated to the lowest paying jobs and were often expected to do the work of their professional bosses without getting adequately compensated. In many cases, the university regarded these women as simply the wives of young graduate students and faculty members who would be soon be moving on to a new campus uh, to get a job or tenure and wouldn't be around the university for very long. When HEW issued its findings, it gave the university 30 days in which to update its existing affirmative action plan for minorities to include women. It also called on the university to review the salaries of all its women employees and to make salaries uh, within um, a short time period. If it did not, it said it would begin holding up federal contracts. Well, the top university administrators didn't take this threat very seriously. They thought that they could put off HEW and say, well, we'll do what you want, but we certainly can't do it uh, by the deadline you've set. But 30 days later, HEW notified the university it was holding up a contract. The first contract to, to be held up was one that was going to provide family planning consulting services to the government of Nepal. And women like Jean King were first afraid 
um, that there was a conspiracy involved to pick a contract like that, one that they would certainly support, but later concluded it was just the first one that had come up uh, on HEW's list. While all of this was going on, uh, university women were also starting to organize themselves and were becoming increasingly concerned about these issues. They formed a grassroots group called Probe, and Probe did several creative things around that time to help bring women together, find out what their concerns were, and to try to organize to uh, begin to address them. One thing they decided to do, which was something Jean King suggested, was to communicate with women. They put their flyers on the inside doors of the bathroom stalls of women's bathrooms, low enough so the women could read them while they were seated on the toilet. If they did this, Jean King explained, rather than putting their notice on a bulletin board, the nearly all-male university administrators would not be able to take them down. Another thing they did a little bit later on was they sat outside the office of University President Robert Fleming for a week to chronicle how few women Fleming actually had meetings with uh, over the course of the week and the f to point out that the few women who did get an audience with him were often just there as a member of groups. Uh, they later presented their findings to Fleming and it, and it uh, he was quite receptive to it and I think made him look at the situation uh, with new perspectives. Many of these women were also very talented uh, with IT skills and it was at a time when the university's personnel systems were really very archaic and these women volunteered to let us uh, take the computer tapes and try to produce the data that you seem to be unable to produce which would help you analyze exactly how many women you have hired and what their relative salaries are. As 1970 was coming to an end, the university realized that in the new calendar year, many more of its contracts would be jeopardized as they came up for renewal. And so on December 31st, Michigan finally worked out an agreement with HEW to set goals and timetables uh, for the hiring and promotion of women but it still wasn't willing to concede that HEW could dictate about how many graduate students it had to admit because they viewed that as a cause for an admissions concern rather than an employment concern. Uh, they didn't believe that even though graduate students might work as teaching assistants or research assistants, they were still inherently students rather than employees. One question people have asked is, why did HEW focus its efforts on Michigan? And the answer seems to be that it was a very large, uh, well-respected public university and also had one of the largest volumes of federal contracts at the time. There was a sense that if HEW could uh, develop a framework uh, for the University of Michigan, many other universities would fall into line following the example Michigan had set. And on the other side, Michigan administrators actually wanted to be the ones to work out an agreement with HEW because they didn't want another college to agree to precedents that they weren't willing to follow. Well, Title IX, as I mentioned, passed Congress in June of 1972. Uh, Michigan and HEW were still continuing to argue over whether Michigan was complying uh, with the program it had set out with HEW. That started the ball rolling, the ball rolling, and certainly uh, increased the sensitivity to the issue on the Michigan campus. But change didn't happen overnight. It was not actually until the late 1970s that HEW got around to finally uh, releasing the final regulations for Title IX because they were still the subject of great controversy. And at Michigan, it took another 15 years for the first woman vice president to be hired and more than a quarter century for Michigan to hire its first woman president, Mary Sue Coleman. Michigan actually became a supporter of affirmative action in college admissions and fought those cases to the Supreme Court 
later on in the 20th century. That's why some people are surprised to learn about this particular time. Women now earn a majority of degrees at all levels of college, and in 2017, they surpassed men in the numbers attending law school and medical school. It's now a very different world than the one in which Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Jane King, and Bernice Sandler helped to conquer. I was happy to reconnect with Jean King about 10 years ago. As I mentioned before, she was a student of history. And one of the things she wrote uh, when she was encouraging people to compile the history I've described is, unless we record our history, it will be lost. Jean and Bernice Sandler worked hard to preserve their history, and it's one reason why it's important to me to now try and share it with you. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing this history with me. I had no idea, and I have a long family history in Michigan. My grandfather went to Michigan State, which I hope you won't hold against me. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> um, and I, I am just fascinated with the way, you know, so many people think of Title IX as this sports-related um, legislation, and obviously it, it had impacts there. Um, but I really loved your emphasis on the professors and this equal access to ed and seeing yourself in your professors. You know, you can't really be what you don't see. And I, I think it's so powerful um, that that, at least at Michigan, is where it, where the fight really originated from. Yes, and certainly I was inspired by the women professors I had then, many of whom were pioneers in their field. And I will also say, did not always share all of the challenges they were facing. It was interesting to go back and, and talk to them now that they're in their 80s or to read oral histories and to learn about their struggles. And as good role models, they were not always complaining or sharing those stories. And it was one reason that motivated me to write a book about their experiences. Mm, that's really powerful. You know, I've noticed that that there have been there are interesting generational differences um, with women and and how we talk about oppression. Um, and, you know, Brooke and I have talked on the podcast about maternity leave and how we're big advocates of it being you know, available to men, women, everybody, you know, everyone have it. But some people generations older than us are like, what are you talking about? Like, you need to prove that you don't need that stuff. And, you know, and so I think those gaps um, are definitely there. It's interesting. They didn't share those, those struggles with you to make, you know, almost in a weird way to prepare you for the world in academia that you're, you're going into. Um, I think they didn't want to scare us. Um, they wanted very much to encourage us. Um, and I appreciate that that was the approach they took. One of the reasons the whole um, field of women's studies grew at that time was that these same women had been told by male professors that questions about women are not worthy of academic study. And I know in talking to my own senior thesis advisor, Kitty Sklar, that she felt, if I'm going to spend the time working on a PhD, I want to study something I can get excited about and, and put that effort in. And so she did her dissertation on Catherine Beecher. Um, she sold it as a major book, won a major historical prize. And but again, they were they were told this is not worthy of study. My journalism professor, Marion Martsoff, she was the only woman in the journalism department at the time. She decided that, um, you know, journalism historians had not covered people like Nellie Bly and others who had had very significant careers. And so she decided this was something she wanted to um, study. And uh, she wrote a well-reviewed book called Up from the Footnote to bring them up out of those footnotes. I wish that you were the first person who told me that academic advisors were the <laughs> people routing out. But, you know, this is this seems to be a common problem when women say, hey, there's this really interesting woman in the past that I want to research. And it's like, oh, 
No, you know, we've had people say they're just wives and mothers or, you know, they, you know, there's not much to find on them because, you know, whatever, get in the archives, people. That's what history is. <laughs> well, it's a sad reality. And I'm, I'm in a group uh, that's been very supportive of women who are working on biographies of women. And we all, in part, because we're women, we want to tell these stories, but we also acknowledge that it's sometimes hard to get the attention of agents and editors who, even if they're women, will say, well, who knows this person? How are we going to sell the book? She's you know, just the wife of or someone who's famous because of her um, you know, relationship to a, fam- a famous man. We've talked about things such as building up Wikipedia entries so that when people go to check, well, who is this person? They will think, oh, she's more important than I realized. And I know that, uh, you know, Wikipedia has initiatives designed to get more uh, biographies of women artists and writers posted there because they're, you know, they're proud of the problem too. There just aren't as many there. That's so, I mean, it's so multifaceted, you know, it's not as easy as just go teach about women because someone has to write the thing that you need to teach about first. So um, you've written the thing that people need to teach about. And I'm curious, where would you direct educators if they wanted to um, dive into some of these primary sources or even secondary sources that you've used in your research? One good resource is one that I contributed to called uh, Women in American uh, Social History 1600 to 2000. And this was a project uh, that my thesis advisor and her husband created to help teach uh, students of women's history how to work with primary documents. Mm. There are uh, many different historical questions uh, that are posed there. And uh, people like me who researched the subject, collected primary documents, and it's part of uh, what students can go and look back at the original documents and how they they uh, supported a story and ask their own questions out of them. I think um, the history uh, surrounding sex discrimination in education is fresh enough that it's also interesting to see how it was covered in the media, whether it was um, the passage of Title IX in 1972, uh, how people dealt with the uh, congressional sex discrimination hearings in the summer of 1970. Uh, The women who were involved with this episode that I've written about uh, made a point of publishing the transcripts of those hearings and uh, making them widely available. And it really is a very good encyclopedia snapshot of what the situation was in colleges in 1970, uh, when these women were caught between uh, not being covered by the civil rights legislation of the 60s and the passage of Title IX, which was still in the future. Things didn't change overnight, even with the passage of Title IX. And It continued to be controversial. The federal government was slow to issue the regulations. They were very controversial. So it continues to be a story that can be followed over the the next half century. And even right now, it's shifting more, I think, from sports considerations to the issue of sexual harassment, um, which is becoming, again, a a big issue and was something that was, frankly, something that was not talked about 50 years ago. It it was something that had to have a name put to it. And it's something that educational institutions are still struggling with. Hmm. Wow. Well, and also all those different things you mentioned are all in this book that you contributed to, this primary source collection that you contributed to? Yes, my book, Conquering Heroines, uh, which is recently published by University of Michigan Press, that is an expansion of this online resource. And uh, one of the reasons I did it was that when I worked on the online project, I discovered that uh, many of the women faculty members who lived through that era had contributed oral histories at various milestones in the past 50 years. And I thought, these are such great personal histories. I'd like to find a way to get them more out of the library's files and into another format. 
And um, not all the women were still around, unfortunately, but I was grateful that I could track some of them down, now in their 80s and 90s, to share their memories. And um, so it was very satisfying. Yeah. Work on that project. And also from my standpoint, I had covered it as a college student with a very college student centric focus. In the subsequent 50 years, I became a professional journalist and moved to Washington and covered federal policymaking. So now I could provide, look at it with some fresh eyes, um, including such issues as uh, congressional lobbying. Uh, who had the ear of various officials? How were they trying to get uh, to those officials? And so to me, at least, it made it a much richer story than with my focus when I'd been in college. Where can people find your book? Well, it's available in usual standard uh, places. It's available on Amazon, also through the uh, publisher, University of Michigan Press. For a short time, the press is actually offering it with a discount uh, and free shipping, which is the promo code uh, UMGL Heroines. Uh, I think now through the end of June, so I'll make sure your listeners know that because uh, it would make it easier to get. But yeah, wow. Well, I hope everybody reads this book because it's such a I, it's such a different. Uh, lens on Title IX than I had uh, sort of come into it thinking about. And I'm so grateful for you to share that history with us um, and all these really intimate stories from the, you know, the dogs being allowed on the sports field and not the women and, you know, all the different things that you talked about. It's just so powerful. So seriously, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing this story with us and taking the time to help us improve public ed. Well, thank you, Kelsey, for giving me this opportunity. And I, I think, you know, when your partners are doing noble work um, to try to support teachers of women's history. And it's I, I know that the women I wrote about, they one of them, Jean King, was a, a history major at Michigan. And it was very important for those women to leave behind their stories so that people like you and I could tell it to the next generation. Well, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.